0: Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of Altitude Crime. I'm your host, Amelia Allen, and thank you so much for being here and for listening. You guys seriously fuel me every week to keep these episodes coming out, and our crime clan is just getting bigger and bigger, so thank you so much for listening today, and if you haven't already, make sure to follow or subscribe to Altitude Crime on your favorite podcast platform. This will help other people find the podcast. So as always, we are covering Colorado true crime stories, and I think we are way overdue for a historic crime. So that is what we're going to be covering today. We are going to transport back to 1928 Denver, and if you are a fan of the phrase, women aren't crazy, men make them that way, this story is for you. So I am going to try to tell this story as clearly as possible, but there are a lot of players in this tale, so I hope it doesn't get confusing. But let's start with a snapshot of what Denver looked like in 1928. The 20s in Denver was a really transitionary time. They had started to clean up the red light district and there was some reformation happening in the city. However, at this time, We find ourselves smack dab in the middle of prohibition, and this brought on a whole different slew of crimes to the city, like bootlegging. So a particular part of our story takes place in the Five Points. Yes, that's right, the Five Points. I'm sure for those of you who aren't living or from Colorado, you thought the Five Points was only an area in New York. But there's actually one in Denver that is at the connection of Welton Street, Washington Street, 27th Street, and East 26th Avenue. The name started because it basically is what would fit on a streetcar sign, because you definitely can't put all those streets on a tiny streetcar sign. And then it just kind of stuck. Nearby Curtis Park opened as Denver's first public park in the area. And the 5 points was really home to early immigrants to Denver, including a large sector of the city's Jewish population and Irish and German immigrants. In the late 1800s, some of the richer white folks started to move towards Capitol Hill and into bigger mansions in that area. So in the meantime, black folks moved into the area to be close to the rail yards where it was really easy to find work. Later on, Denver Fire Station number three, which was also nearby, became the first all-black fire station. So by the 1920s, where our story takes place, this historic neighborhood was really known as the heart of Denver's black community, and it would continue to be so for decades, pretty much until the beginning of desegregation. At the same time in Denver's history, the Denver Post was really starting to become the newspaper that it is today. The Denver Post started as a political journal before being taken over by Frederick Bonfi and Harry Tammen. They started to really hit hard with promotions and really shocking articles. And they even had a history of blackmailing advertisers. In order to tame any rivals, They also added in a physical assault to their roster of business tactics. It would be their reporting on crime in the area that would really make the Denver Post start to gain popularity. And talk about true crime transcending all generations. According to Alan Pendergast's reporting for Westward, the Post was known for its eye-catching and, let's be honest, rather blunt headlines, including, quote, Head chopped to bits by killers in fiendish attack on lonely man, and eyes are gouged out and face cut to bits, unquote. They were also really famous for using the tagline, Crime Never Pays, with each crime story that they covered. But I can assure you, for the Denver Post, crime definitely did pay. The Denver Post used the story we're covering today in order to grow its reputation. The newspaper had confidently started to call itself, quote, the best newspaper in the USA, unquote. Before kind of diving deeper into the story, I do want to give a big shout out to Alan Pendergast and his article called Love Crazy that he published in Westward. This is really the most comprehensive version that I can find about this particular crime so if you want to check that out I do have a link to that article on altitudecrime.com. So I think the best way to start to understand today's story is to understand some of the women that play a role in it. Let's first talk about Emma. Emma was married to John C. Bobzine, a mechanic in the town of Gilman, Iowa. Emma would be left high and dry when Bob Zine left out of the blue, leaving her with two children, Marion and Carl. After hearing nothing from her husband for 11 years, Emma finally applied for divorce in 1923. And this lady was seriously a boss lady of the 1920s. Emma started doing people's laundry in her home to make money after her husband left and while raising both her children, managed to make enough money to buy a house. Another young lady in our story was Cicely Pearl Lewis, whose family was known as the owners of a portion of Santa Fe Drive in Denver. She married a man named Bob Evans in 1914, but the marriage was short-lived and ended just three years later in 1917. The reason he gave? According to Alan Pendergast reporting, He basically told her he fell in love with someone else and he just wanted to go hang out and have a great time and didn't want to be married. As the marriage was crumbling, Bob Evans had told Cicely that he was going to go visit a brothel and she could go with him or she could just go do whatever she wanted. He really didn't care either way. Needless to say, this divorce was finalized in 1920. Another leading lady in our story was Lillian Evans. Within months of Emma's divorce from John Bobzine in 1923, Bob Evans and Lillian Herzl were married. Lillian had actually filed for divorce within a year of them being married, and she noted some not great things. She basically said that there were acts of cruelty in the marriage, but she eventually backpedaled and the two ended up remaining married. The two had been married for five years by 1928, where our story really starts to gain momentum. On November 22nd, 1928, Bob Evans and Harry Oley were Denver patrolmen hot on the heels of a liquor car in the Five Points. They watched the liquor car as it delivered a gallon of Prohibition whiskey to a boarding house on Curtis Street, and the patrolmen sprung into action. They restrained the delivery man and the booze. They then ended up lining up the party goers against a wall in the boarding house. But when Oli checked the bedroom, he found a man under the bed and that man started shooting at him. Oli was killed immediately. He was shot in both the head and the shoulder. The owner of the boarding house, Lavina Reese, was standing in the doorway and was hit in the chest as well. The same bullet that hit Lavina's body exited through her and hit Bob Evans in the right arm. He dodged another shot from the shooter and ran out of the house. Once out of the house, Bob Evans found a phone and called for backup. Soon, the areas of Curtis Park and the Five Points were crawling with cops. The shooter was long gone, but that didn't keep policemen from looking for anyone that had any information on this. Not long into their search, they were approached by a man named Henry Hill. He had actually been in the bedroom when Oli went in to check for other partygoers. He had been sitting on the bed while the shooter had been underneath. He told police that the shooter was a man named Eddie Ives. Now Eddie Ives was no stranger to police. He had a rap sheet as a burglar and had served five prison terms and had been a suspect in over a hundred Denver burglaries. While Ives was a model prisoner, he just had trouble being a model citizen once he got out of jail. But Ives was not an intimidating man. He was a white man that was about 80 pounds soaking wet. Henry Hill explained to officers that he had invited Eddie Ives to this party and that they had become acquainted during a previous jail stint. He assumed that Ives was really quick to pull the trigger because together they had knocked over a pharmacy earlier in the evening. Ives had to have assumed that the authorities were there looking for him. Officers were able to confirm with Lavina Reese, the owner of the boarding house, that Henry Hill's friend, Eddie Ives, was the shooter that she saw. Unfortunately, Levina would end up dying due to her wounds. Later that evening, Eddie Ives was found at the house he shared with his mother. His room was equipped for crime. There was an automatic gun, burglary tools, and a list of potential hits. Ives immediately denied knowing Henry Hill. But it ends up he had the gun that was used in the shooting on him when he was arrested. When asked about it, he said the gun was Henry Hills, again, trying to take the blame off of himself. Police brought in partygoers and they were able to identify Ives as being at the party. Bob Evans, the patrolman that was shot in the arm and escaped the scene, never ended up seeing the shooter. Once he knew shots were fired, he just got out of there. To have his wound treated, Bob was taken to Denver General Hospital. There they had awards specifically for firemen and policemen. And I am gendering it that way because due to the time frame, firemen and policemen were literally only men. Bob was really an asset to the police force and had been serving the city of Denver for three years. So he was actually looking forward to receiving a promotion soon to detective. Bob's wound proved to not be too serious. He would just need to rest and heal for a few days, and he was even going to be out of the hospital just in time to enjoy Thanksgiving with his family. While he was there, Bob saw a familiar face in the hospital and a connection that would not go unnoticed by another patient. Louis Smith was a fireman also in the ward, he had just had a hernia operation and was recovering in the hospital for a few days. When Bob saw this other person at the hospital, Louie could tell right away that the two knew each other. Bob hadn't seen this woman, who was his nurse, for over a year, but they had a deep history. Bob's nurse was 38-year-old Farise King, and she would put Eddie Ives's aim to shame. Faris King was a Midwest native and had married a Kansas City doctor around 1912, but the union would start a line of devastation for Faris. The marriage only lasted 12 days, and the doctor left her high, dry, and pregnant. She gave birth to a baby girl who ended up dying at only five months old in 1913. After getting divorced, King looked to start a new life in Denver. By that point, most of her family had moved to the area. She took up residence with her twin sister Clarice and her family on Garfield Street in Denver, Colorado. Recovering from the tragedy of losing a child is right when she fell into the arms of Bob Evans. King met Bob Evans in 1916. She had been set up on a blind date, and the original dates she was supposed to meet bowed out and Bob Evans came in his place. Bob was tall, dark, and handsome, and King was immediately taken with him. Little did she know, Bob Evans was married to a woman we talked about a little bit earlier on in the episode, Cicely Lewis, at the same time that he sat at that date Later on down the line, King eventually found out about Cicely. But by that time, she was totally enamored with Bob Evans and there was no turning back. And she thought that he felt the same about her. He had confessed his love for her and he intended to marry her. At one point along their courting, I'm not quite sure when this happened. Bob Evans even took King as his middle name in order to show how devoted he was to Farese King. His flattery truly knew no bounds, and being a woman in love, King ended up opening up about her past marriage and the loss of her young baby girl. Bob Evans really latched on to this. He told her that he knew that they would have their own child but that he would also have his last name put on her dead baby's tombstone and that he would consider himself her father posthumously, which is just kind of strange. He in constantly, in letters to her, refers to her deceased baby as if her daughter was his own, and I don't know if this is just like weird romantic drippings or if there's some bizarre psychology to this or manipulation piece to this, but it just hit me as strange when I was reading about it. Bob Evans would be enlisting in the Navy for the current war in Europe, which would have been World War I. But prior to his leaving, he really pressured Pharis King for sex, which was still pretty taboo at the time. Even though it was the roaring 20s, there was a lot weight put on for women to remain chaste. And King initially, when this was all being reported on, did not own up to her and Bob Evans having sexual relations because, again, it was embarrassing and she was kind of a ruined woman at her time for that. But she had, in fact, eventually broke down and the two consummated their relationship in the spring of 1917. And in the same year, Bob gave her an engagement ring. So she really felt that the sexual relationship was fine because they were in love, they were going to get married, it was all falling into place. Enlisting in the Navy meant that Bob would move to San Francisco and he wrote King letters very often in the coming months. And they just, again, dripped with longings, sweet words and pet names and talk of their children together and how he's the dad of her deceased baby and just constant flattery. But Bob Evans was really mum about his actual life in the Navy and what he was doing on a day to day basis. Well, we know now this is because he had never enlisted at all and never intended to enlist. When he came back to Denver for a short time, Bob Evans told King that he had actually been rejected from the Navy and had to come back to Colorado to start the re-enlisting process and then he would go off to San Diego for a different naval station. After his second departure to California, Ferris King received a really strange letter. It said that Evans was married and he was traveling to California with his wife. Of course, the writer did not identify themselves, but I have to give them some credit for trying to get Ferris King out of a bad situation. King, of course, confronted Bob Evans, and he said the claim was totally ridiculous and that she should just come to San Diego and visit him and see that everything's fine. When Faris King got to San Diego, Bob Evans never came to collect her from the train station. She ended up getting to a hotel, and she did not see or hear from him until the next day. So this day after she's arrived in San Diego, they spend some time together. And then the next day, again, no word from Bob. So she's come all this way. She starts to look for him and definitely caught him off guard. She found him and with a letter in his hand to another woman addressed to Denver. So he made up excuses as to why she couldn't walk him back to his ship at the end of the day. And he gets her to her hotel room. She goes up. She's looking out the window. And she watches him not walk to the ship. Not walk to somewhere nearby where he could maybe be running an errand. He instead walks into a nearby hotel. So, Fereese King did a little bit more investigating and found out he had a room there. And so did Mrs. Evans. Fereese King went home completely heartbroken. She heard no more from Bob Evans until the end of the war. And then Bob came to get a trunk that he had left at her home. And he acted like nothing had happened. And he confidently told King that he was filing for divorce. And as Bob had the ability to do with Farise King, he sweet-talked her and won her back over. At this point, Farise King was just obsessed. I mean, even though her family was not fond of him, she just felt that Bob Evans could do no wrong. She kept every little memento that she could of him, and she just knew they were going to have a life together. But while Bob had promised himself to Faris King, the wedding was not fast in coming. And he had a lot of reasons for postponing the wedding. The first was really obvious. He had to wait for his divorce to be finalized. They couldn't get married. He'd be a bigamist. They had to wait till that was legal said and done. Well, once the divorce was final, he then said he needed to save money. And I'm assuming the spiel he probably gave for Reese King was he wanted to give her the wedding and life she wanted. So I'm sure that was reasoning for her there. But years passed with no nuptials. Bob finally made his intentions clear in a letter. According to Alan Pendergast reporting, it said, quote, "'There is no use for this to continue longer.'" Not that I think any less of you, Farise. The fact is, I have made up my mind that I am better off as I am and will never marry again. I would like to call just as a friend of the family if I can be considered as such. But I do not wish to cause you to have any false hopes. After receiving this letter, Bob continued to call King for a few weeks. She glowed about a short reunion in her diary that took place on August 10th, 1922. But after this, a year would pass with no word from Bob. King tried to call him and at one point found out he had moved to North Denver. She then found him in the North Denver directory and Mrs. Evans was also listed at the address. This missus would have been Lillian Evans that we talked about earlier on. King just felt used. She tracked down Bob and confronted him. And Bob did what he did best with her. He talked his way out of it. He said the marriage that he had with Lillian was not one of love. That her father had forced him to marry her because she was with child. But don't worry. After she had given birth, he would leave his wife and new infant to marry King. Both of these things were a lie. Bob would continue to be married to Lillian, and she was never pregnant. And on a side note, don't trust guys that say this. It does not matter what decade it is. If they are willing to do this to another woman, they have no character and they are willing to do it to you. That is something that transcends the generations. Bob continued to complain about his marriage, and there's a little truth in it because the 1924 divorce complaint that Lillian had put in says some of the same, even though she ended up recanting it and they stayed married. So the tryst between Bob Evans and Farise King started all over again, but by June 1st, 1924, Bob had totally disappeared again. At this point, King just kind of gave up. She moved to Texas for a brief time in 1927 to nurse for a private patient. And by the time she returned to Denver, she was engaged to an electrician named James Daniels. The marriage was due to happen in December 1928. Verice King had already bought new items to travel to Texas with and she had chosen a blue wedding dress, as was Vogue at the time. But her love for Bob Evans had not faded, and James never had a chance at keeping her heart. James often wrote her letters that she either did not read or put in the trash. Bob Evans had used her while promising a life together with her, and when he was done with her, he threw her out and moved on. She was just obsessed at this point and had been strung along for so long. Just a few months after her return from Texas is when Bob would end up in her hospital ward with a gunshot wound, a minor injury that would have him moving out of her care soon. Louis, the fireman that was in the hospital ward recovering from a hernia operation, received good care from Faris King. But she often excused herself to talk to Bob Evans. Louis had noticed that they had brief talks in a hushed tone, and then King would make sure to check in on him again before he fell asleep. From what Louis saw, it seemed like the conversations were friendly. He knew when he first saw them together, the two recognized each other. What he didn't know was what Farise King actually had in store. On November 29th, 1928, the day after Bob was shot in the Five Points boarding house, Farise King bought a pistol at a pawn shop on Larimer Street. She picked the cheapest option, a $6 gun with nickel plating. When the pawnbroker asked if she needed bullets, she said all she needed was one round. When the pawnbroker also asked why she needed a gun, she said she lived alone and it was for self-defense. She made the payment under the name May Wilson. That evening on her shift would be her last with Bob Evans in the hospital. He was set to be released the following day. That evening they talked for a long time. After that, Louis remembered hearing her crying. And as he dozed off for the evening, he noticed her writing at a nearby table. A jury would later find out that during this conversation, Bob Evans had offered to start a sexual relationship with her again. She rebuffed the advance, saying that she would not do that unless the two were married. He fired back at her, saying that he wasn't actually married now. And this really fueled her emotions. The following morning, gunfire rang out in the hospital ward. While Bob Evans was sleeping, Farese King had shot him twice. A later autopsy found that there were two bullets in Bob's brain. Faris King then turned the gun on herself and shot herself in the chest. Bob died immediately. King survived her intended kill shot for herself as the bullet had hit off a rib and missed her heart completely. She was sent into surgery immediately and it was thought that she wouldn't live through the day. This was a huge hit for Denver police. They were already mourning the loss of Oli, who had died in the line of duty in the five points, but they had never suspected that Bob Evans would die in a place where he was supposed to be getting well. The writing that Louis had seen Farise King do the night before the shooting was a kind of suicide note. According to Alan Pendergast's reporting, it read, quote, Dearest Bob, you belong to me and I cannot go on any longer living without you. And you shall not go on. I have waited over 5 years for this chance and it came. I hope no one else will ever know the real cause for this, only you and I. Faris. King wrote a second note for her brother Floy. She asked her mortician brother to bury her near Evans and to apologize for all the grief she would cause her family members. So if you're watching the clock tick down, you'll see we're near the end of today's episode. And that's because this one's going to be a two-parter. You may think we're near the end of the story, but I've still got a lot of twists coming for you, including somebody's false identity and a sentence that will surprise you. But let's finish up today with a few thoughts on what we know about this case so far. Musing number one. So where Farese King shot Bob Evans is reported a bit differently depending on where you read. We do know that the autopsy showed he had two bullets in his head, so it's clear that she did two shots to the head. But most places will report that the shots were one to the head and one to the heart. I have to kind of wonder if that was part of the reporting of the time for how sensational this was and how much this crime has emphasis on how Farise King felt towards Bob Evans. I have to kind of wonder if that affected how the actual killing was reported in this kind of sentimental way that she shot him in the head and the heart and that that was indicative of her feelings for him. Or it could just be I have partial information and it was actually three shots, two to the head, one to the heart. Not sure if we'll quite get real clarification on that at this point. Musing number two. I mentioned this a little bit earlier, but you have to understand in this case, this was a totally different time frame and Farise King was a desperate woman. She was basically now soiled, you know, going and marrying a new man she was already used up you know as far as her sexual reputation goes and this was a time frame that that still was really all a woman had. So you can see how she over these very long bouts of this affair could just build and build and build to where it came out to be this type of case. Musing number three. So I'm not going to say that Bob Evans deserved this, but I will say be careful what situations you get yourself into. We all never make a decision based on how somebody else will react. But when you're playing with affairs of the heart, a little bit of hurt and a little bit of rage goes a long way when you have a pistol. Musing number four. You have to wonder how things might have been different if the date that Farese King was supposed to have would have actually showed up. Remember, her first blind date with Bob Evans, he was a stand-in for whoever was supposed to actually be there first. If the first guy had showed up, would we even know Ferese King's name? Or would she just be lost to obscurity of some woman who met a man, got married, and had kids in the end? Just shows that our lives are so at the whim of who and what happens to us over the course of our lives. Well, thanks for tuning in today, guys. I'm super excited to tell you the second part of this story next week, and it's probably going to be pretty exciting compared to this week's episode. We're kind of laying the groundwork, and it gets really wild in the second part, so I'm really excited to wrap up this story with you. Don't forget to follow or subscribe to Altitude Crime on whatever podcast platform you listen on, and connect with me on social media. You can find me on Instagram at Altitude Crime Podcast, and on Facebook and Twitter at Altitude Crime. You can also check out altitudecrime.com for source materials and merchandise, and I'm also kind of trying to come across a tagline I haven't really landed on something that I think is really indicative of myself and of the content of the podcast so if you have ideas send them along I'd love to hear what you guys are thinking well as always thanks for spending part of your week with me and I will talk to you next week on Altitude Crime Episode 18, Fatal Attraction, Bob Evans and Farise King, was written, recorded, and edited by Amelia Allen. Music by Podbean.com.